1: We're excited to welcome Sean Hopkins back uh, after not too many days to, <laughs> to help us work through what is, quite frankly, one of the one of the more difficult periods of history, as well as one of the more difficult texts in the in the whole Old Testament, because there's there's not a lot of mountain peak hope and and positivity coming out of the Book of Jeremiah.
2: Well, I I would say Isaiah is a master of being a truth teller when things are difficult, but then leaving you believing and and remembering God's love. And it's not that Jeremiah isn't a master of that, but, uh, you know, it it, compared to these, these beautiful flowing passages with Isaiah, Jeremiah knows the same God and he's teaching the same God, but, uh, it's just the, the this is a really difficult time where destruction is coming and people are really rejecting God. And he's got to tell the truth about
0: that. Yeah, he so. can't be preaching, uh, eat, drink, give me merry. Like he needs to bring the hammer down. Like you guys have been breaking the covenant again and again.
1: Yeah. Which is a is a significant thing that he's he's now in Jerusalem where Isaiah had been, but he's roughly a hundred years later, and we're getting that much closer to the Babylonian captivity and exile so the people have gotten that much more rebellious.
2: If you think of the famous time for Latter-day, or infamous time for Latter-day Saints, when a group of people decides to kill, to murder Joseph Smith and Hiram, this is this kind of a time. Uh, They are going to try to kill Lehi. Mm -hmm. Lehi's own children, influenced by this kind of thinking, is going to want to murder Lehi and Nephi, and Jeremiah has to deal with threats to his life from his own people who is trying to help. And so as difficult as our world can be right now, uh, it, this is this is a unique time, and so if you hear Jeremiah being a little strong, and by the way, Jeremiah may be listening up in heaven, going, "No, I, no I, I, you got you got me wrong. Don't misrepresent <laughs> me." But anyway, this beautiful literature and powerful sacred literature. Um, and yeah.
0: yeah, and if we're not back next week, maybe it's because people didn't like the way we taught, and they treated us like they tried to treat Jeremiah. <laughs> good.
1: You know, that's actually a really good point, Sean. Is sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll put the situation of the prophet onto the prophet's shoulders and and judge him harshly because of it. Jeremiah the man, he's amazing. So if we look at the timeline, you have Babylon coming to town for the first time in a major way, carrying away Jehoiakim and many of the, the elite in Jerusalem into Babylon for the first wave, putting then Zedekiah on the throne, and then a few years later, 587, 586, they come and carry away the rest of the the group captive, destroy the temple, destroy the city. It's terrible. So Jeremiah has the distinct position of being a prophet who actually is living back here, and he's making prophecies about what's going to happen if they don't repent. He's living to see all of these events in Jerusalem. He didn't get to leave like Lehi and Nephi did. He's there. He's in, the, he's in the throes of it, being abused by his own people for making these prophecies. So he gives you the prophecies, he lives through them, and he's seeing the aftermath of all of these events. It's the before, during, and after prophet. It's quite unique.
2: Agreed. So, and, and we just aren't as familiar with these sections as Latter-day Saints, right? And so the, it's, it's really important to spend some time here, but it's a little bit of foreign territory for us to, to work in these chapters. So let's talk about
1: the man himself. What what do we know about him, who he is, his his prophetic calling here in chapter one?
0: I like his name. His name means uh, Jehovah will exalt. You get words like Ram, like the Rami umtum in the Book of Mormon. Ram means high, lifted up, exalted, lofty. Uh, Abraham, his original name was Abram, exalted father. So Jeremiah's name is an expression of what Jehovah does for us and I can imagine Jeremiah feeling despondent that here his name represents what God can offer people. He can exalt you and lift you up and instead because of your choices, you guys have walked away from God and therefore you have walked into the valley of death and darkness.
2: So you watch uh l-
0: loved ones
2: who just make unhealthy choices because they are relying on things that are inconsistent and and i watch myself do that by the way as well and and that's that's challenging because you love them so much not that you want them to make the choices you want them to make. You want them to have joy in their lives. And I think this is the case for Jeremiah. He has no desire to constrain or control anyone. He wants them to have joy. And, and he's trying to say, look, this isn't working. You you need to point here. And there's going to be some great verses in this section. So I'll say another thing about Jeremiah. This is one where we know he comes from a priestly family. And so uh, he comes from the, those descendants of Aaron, right? And so he has uh, his own Uh, Levitical priesthood authority, you might say, and then as Joseph Smith and others have taught, this idea that these prophets have Melchizedek uh, authority, they've got
0: high levels of priesthood authority. Adding to that, part of the role of these priests anciently was not only to engage in the rituals and protect sacred space, but was to teach people the law, the covenantal fidelity, covenantal faithfulness, and you see this coming through with Jeremiah where he's even complaining about the other priests not teaching the law of Moses. It reminds me of Abinadi going to the priests under King Noah who were supposed to be teaching the fullness of the truth to uh, draw people into Jesus. Jeremiah is dealing with a very similar situation as is Abinadi where you have Wicked people being led by wicked kings with priests who are not fully teaching what they should be teaching. Just the lament.
2: And they're using scripture to justify it. Right? Abinadi is such a great example because they're like, no, we actually fit Isaiah's teachings. What are you accusing us of? And he's like, mm. Can we look at the Ten Commandments? Can we talk about holiness, right? Now let's let's just turn the page from uh, speaking anachronistically from Isaiah 52. Let's read Isaiah 53, right? And so they've they're missing it and I would say Laman and Lemuel are a great example of this. They have even interpreted past events. They are probably relying on Isaiah in different ways mm-hmm. where they're saying, no, we know from Isaiah's time, this temple is not destroyed. God protects this temple. And if you have faith, then you're not going to believe the words of Jeremiah. He is the one who's deceiving you. And we know, look look at what happened in Isaiah's day and, and anybody who's speaking. And by the way, uh, another consistent message that the prophets have given often is don't make these foreign alliances. And then Jeremiah comes along and says, I, you need to submit to the Babylonians, actually. Okay. And they're like, what? This is not the way it works. Which I love that prophets give the message appropriate for their time.
1: That is such a an important thing of when you're following God's prophets. You can't follow the prophets from 50 years ago, or even if the prophet has changed the direction for whatever reason, you can't follow the the prophet of 10 years ago. It's we're right behind the prophet currently, and so this idea of even Laman and Lemuel saying. You Nephi and Lehi, you're the bad ones because you're you're speaking evil against the Jews in Jerusalem in the temple when and calling on Isaiah, they were under siege from Assyria, an extremely powerful empire, and God delivered them so yeah, Babylon could come and siege us, and we have the temple, we have the presence of God, so you're bad because you're showing no faith in God, so they're hearkening to an older prophet rather than the current prophet.
2: Let me add one other thought that may be helpful for us as Latter-day Saints as we read the Bible. We sometimes superimpose our own uh, experience and the organization of the Church today on what's going on then, and, and there's some distinctions there that we may not be able to see perfectly or understand perfectly what's going on, but it, our prophet uh, today, President Russell M. Nelson, is prophet and high priest, right? He is the institutional head and the prophetic leader, right? But in those times, under this uh, Mosaic covenant, you have a high priest that is a different figure, typically, than the prophet. And prophets, at least as far as we can tell, they are doing really important things and they're understood in, in society, but they sort of stand a little bit off to the side. And so they don't, it's not exactly the same thing as going, wait, I know that institutional head and I can see that clearly. Others are going to debate. Well, you know, does Jer- is Jeremiah saying the right thing or not saying the right thing? Jeremiah, a little bit
0: different. He'd be looked at like as a detractor well, he's not part of the institutional leadership, he's not the king, he's not the high priest, and what he's saying is negating what they're teaching, so he is weakening the hands of the defenders of Jerusalem, and therefore well he's a threat to our nation, and therefore we should execute him. This is Lehi's situation too, yeah. which comes down to how do you recognize who is a true prophet? Hmm. And there's a couple of important tests you can run. Um, do you feel the spirit? Do what they teach, lead you closer to God. Very specific things. Um, Article of Faith 13, right? Do you find more truth, light, joy, happiness? Do we, we seek after the things that are good. Now, Drew, Jeremiah is preaching hard things, but ultimately for the salvation of the people. So, the, you're exactly right that we, we shouldn't say, well, gosh, you know, how come they – how could anybody have rejected Jeremiah? It wasn't completely cut and dried. Anciently, about who was speaking for the Lord. Well, for some people, they got themselves confused because they didn't run their proper tests, and they were too wicked, and their ears got stopped up. Yeah.
1: So let's jump in, chapter one, to this this prophetic call. As Sean mentioned, him starting out as a priest and then taking on this this different role as a as a prophet of
2: God. Let me give a quick uh, sort of uh, overview where we are historically in chapter 1. Chapters 1 through 6 are prophecies given under uh, King Josiah, and this is righteous King Josiah for the most part. Uh, According to the biblical text, he is sort of the best of the best as far as the the Judite kings go. I'm sort of a fan of Hezekiah, by the way, but Josiah gets a lot of acclaim he's prophesied of in advance. So this is a very righteous king, and they are aligned really well, Jeremiah and Josiah are, even though the people are really struggling. That's not going to last forever. Josiah rules for about 31 years. Then you're going to get Jehoiakim. That's chapters 7 through 20 and that he has about an 11-year reign, Jehoiakim, and then chapters 21 through 38, that's Zedekiah, and then that's, that's a figure we're familiar with because, uh, as Latter-day Saints of the Book of Mormon. Um, and, and there are a couple of other figures in here that rule just for three months, by the way. So,
1: so this is a very important name, obviously, as he said, with the Book of Mormon, because that's uh, associated with Mulek the son that isn't recorded in the Bible, because according to the Bible, all of his sons are killed, um, and then he's blinded and taken into Babylon, but apparently there was a younger son who got taken away, named Mulek, who becomes the the father of all of the Mulekites that join up with the, uh, the Nephites later on. Also significant is the fact that Zedekiah happens to be the very last Davidic king in the long line of kings over the house of Judah. He's he's the last one. After him, we can come back to Jerusalem, we're going to rebuild the temple, but we never restore the throne until Jesus comes and they didn't That's recognize – a different kind of throne. They didn't yes. recognize that kind of Davidic
2: king. Uh, Tyler mentioned Mulek, it's sort of fun uh, that the name, the word for king in Hebrew is Melech, and so one of the ways of understanding that that name Mulek is it's a diminutive of Melech, the little king, the right, little or king. The, the the child king, so to speak. And yeah. that's just we don't know that for sure, but that's an interesting possibility to yeah. consider. So let's finish off these chapters uh, thirty nine through forty five are going to be after the fall of Jerusalem, so post five eighty six. And then 46 through 51 are prophecies against foreign nations. This is like that section in Isaiah where you just sort of, God is the God of all, it's not just the God of Judah or of Israel, and so he's going to speak to and for and about foreign nations as well. And then there is a, the, the final chapter is 52, it's a conclusion. And that, now you understand Jeremiah, you're done. <laughs> That's so, it. Yeah, done. <laughs> I'm turn, ready, to, good. turn the video off right
0: now. <laughs> all
1: done. So now, let's jump into chapter 1 into these prophecies that are given, and and chapter 1 largely opens with his his identity and with his call. Um, Whenever you get a prophetic call, sometimes we refer to these as throne theophanies, in this case it doesn't mention him actually seeing the Lord, it just talks about the word of the Lord coming unto him in verse 4, and it's, it's one of these passages that we love to go, through, go to as members of the Church in verse 5, "...before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations." It's a beautiful passage to talk about this, this possibility of, of allusions to premortal existence.
2: Yeah, and I would say, think of it with that understanding. Before you were born, I knew you, and I ordained you. I foreordained you. I ordained you in some time before you were ever born. Now, by the way, others who read this and don't have an understanding of a pre-mortal existence will read this as God knows all things. He's Mm -hmm. omnipresent in time as well because of his omniscience, Right. Uh, you might say. And so he he knows what happens before it happens, right? And so you can trust God. I knew you before, so you can trust me, Jeremiah. And that's a powerful message too. And, and by the way, not an untrue message, uh, but it's so powerful. And I think it's so comforting to us when we have our own trials, just as Jeremiah lived in a time of trial to say, yes, God knows in advance, but he also knows me. He knows the premortal me and he's prepared me as, as Doctrine and Covenants is going to say, uh, there have been, there's been a
0: preparation for, you, you can do this, right. you can do this. You can do hard things. Yeah, well said. In verse 6 you have Jeremiah responding to his call, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Mm-hmm. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever command thee, thou shalt speak. In verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Now you see a similar theme going on in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah's call, he's in the temple and he has the live coal from the altar put on his lips to purge him so that he's ready to speak God's word. This is a very powerful symbol. If you compare this to, say, ancient Egypt, you will see on ancient Egyptian temple walls where the pharaoh is being fed the words of eternal life from their, their conception of gods so they can stand before the judgment bar of God. And the symbol here is in the Bible that the words that are given to Jeremiah are from God, they're pure, they're good, and they will save anybody who listens to them. And it also to remind us, Jeremiah is not simply inventing the word of God. He's not sitting around saying, huh, what could I do for a job? Let's say I could be a bricklayer, I could be a farmer, how about I just start preaching whatever comes to my mind? Instead, it's he's preaching, like Samuel the Lamanite, whatever God has put into his heart, and into his mouth. So you can trust that the words we have here come from God.
2: Uh, Can I say a couple of things about that? I love that you've connected Isaiah and Jeremiah, so let's just play with that for another moment because some of the imagery in Isaiah, if you connect them together, Isaiah is called and he's so intimidated, right? this, This theme of the reluctant prophet, the prophet who recognizes his own weaknesses, right? And I think that that is understood well by us today he's called into the presence of god and and that's a that's a bit of a risky you know, journey. That that's, that puts obligations on you. Am I ready for this? Can I do this? And you see it with Enoch as well. He's called into the presence of God, and we might say into the divine council. In Isaiah, there's even angels surrounding it, uh, surrounding the throne, and it's sort of, it's, it's this uh, mosaic temple, Solomon temple imagery. He's given a message, and then he is sent forth with that message from God. And I love how well that mirrors the preparation to serve missions, uh, to serve the Lord in, in our day. Both the baptism and confirmation were c- called into or given the presence of God and said, now you stand as a witness, and then uh, as we're endowed with power in the temple and sent forth with knowledge to share it. And you see it here with Jeremiah, here's the message, go forth. These are great connections. They're, they're, it's really beautiful.
1: And this should give everybody some some semblance of hope in whatever it is that God has called you to perform. I could be wrong, but I don't know of a single prophetic call in any of the scriptures where the prophet responded with, well, it's about time. I've been, I've been so ready for this. Let me go.
0: Look at my resume. I can't believe it took you this long to, to see my application.
1: Every prophet that I see called in scripture is overwhelmed by the call and feels completely inadequate. And, and has their reasons, whether it's slow speech or too young or the people hate me, whatever it may be. And I love the fact that God is willing to work with people who aren't so well prepared that they're just sitting on the prophetic mountain wait, waiting for the call to come from on high, saying, okay, now I can officially begin. He picks common people and then he shapes them and molds them and works with them to do his work, which by the way, side note, God could do this a variety of ways. He doesn't need a man to go and spread these words. He could get on a heavenly megaphone and voice from heaven, say all of these exact things to the people. It'd be a lot more effective. But he uses us, people people like Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and you and me, to fulfill callings in the Church, whatever they may be, because you and I are given the opportunity to grow and in the process become more like God through our service. And and you see – Jeremiah's life, by the way, I think you could classify him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Mm-hmm. I think you could see him as a Christ figure in that city of Jerusalem in a lot of ways.
2: Let me – I love every – and uh, 100% agree with everything you said. And let me add a, a, another perspective just because it might comfort some people who are like, yeah, but I want to serve. It's not like I want to be important or I think I'm amazing, but I want to serve. And I am grateful for Abraham and the note that is struck in his record where he's like, no, I sought after these blessings. And then when God appears, I sought you diligently. Now I want the rights of the fathers to do good, not because I want to be important, but I want to do good. And so those of you who are like, wait, but I was excited to go on my mission. And when I, when I received this calling, I was intimidated, but I, I was pleased to be called to do good. That, that's also there scripturally. Yeah.
1: That is a beautiful, beautiful counter to, to this example. So we jump into verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying so, – so the call is complete, now here comes the message – Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. And then said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. The almond tree has a lot of beautiful imagery and symbolism for them in that ancient world.
2: Yeah. So the and the shak- the shaked, and you know if you've got an almond tree or have seen an almond tree, those blossoms come in the spring. They come quickly. It's so beautiful. It's so refreshing. It's so life giving. And then they're gone, right? Mm-hmm. But what he's saying, and, and he does a play on words in verse twelve. Thou hast well seen. I will hasten. That's also shaket. It's the same root that's being used there, right? And so you have this new life, but this this thing that happens rapidly, right? Uh, don't don't think you're waiting for a giant oak tree to grow up. This is the almond tree. These are the blossoms on the almond tree. There may be some other thoughts there as well, but
1: well, that's exactly where where I th- I think we wanted to go with this is this idea that it's the Lord who's going to hasten his word to perform it. He is going to accelerate his work, as you're saying, not in the time it takes to grow a mighty oak, but in the time it takes for that almond tree to blossom. It'll When he wants to accelerate his work, he'll accelerate it, and it'll go quickly moving forward. Which now brings us, if you look at verse 14, then the Lord said unto me, out of the north, an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. Now, many of you watching might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I thought Babylon was to the east. It is, but there's a huge desert in between Babylon and Jerusalem, and that fertile crescent of Mesopotamia, most of the movement is not across the desert. It would be up through Assyria, down through Syria, down through Israel, and down into the kingdom of Judah, which means all of those conquering armies would always come in from the north, traditionally, or if you're being attacked by Egypt, from the south.
2: Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's great, and even directionally speaking, the north so east is considered an intimidating direction because these hot winds, the hamsin, come off of the Arabian desert. And so if you think of this idea of Christ returning from the east, that's a second coming image where he comes. And the other image that accompanies that is fire, right? That's the idea. And, and then he proceeds west into the holy of holies in the temple, right? North also is uh, symbolizes destruction, apostasy, those kinds of things, because those, those Countries, those empires would come in from the north, right? Mm-hmm. West is is the kinder direction, uh, compass direction, yes. From other yeah, region. off of the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. So now, watch how he closes chapter one with a shall we say a re reassurance, because <laughs> mm-hmm. he's already reassured Jeremiah earlier with his calling, but now it's almost as if to say, Jeremiah, you're going to be preaching all of this. But you're not going to be very popular. But look at verse 17, "...thou therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them." For behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city and an iron pillar and a brazen wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. So, he's saying, look, you've got all the ruling class, all of the elite, all of the power structure. I, the God of heaven, am going to prepare you to go and face them as well as all the people. And then look at the final verse. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Wow, what a prophetic call. Get ready, Jeremiah. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be pleasant. But I'm with you. So that's all that matters.
2: There's some really great teaching insight uh, in in what you're reading in verse 17. So anybody listening who is, uh, you know, terrified to go out on a mission, any, any early morning seminary teachers, any uh, Sunday school teachers what of youth that you find uh, terrifying, look look at that advice again. Gird up your loins, you know, prepare uh, and, and be ready to go in. Don't go in casually and arise. Speak unto all them that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces. That is so good, because if you're dismayed, if you let yourself be afraid, no, God is going to support you, and if you let yourself be afraid, then guess what? You're going to, you'll probably be confounded. We've all had that experience where we get
0: nervous and
2: terrified, and we're like, wait, that wasn't me. That didn't flow in the right way.
0: I'm going to add to this. So, I spent some years doing professional development for teachers, and I would help teachers think about this. When you are really relaxed in a great lesson, what does your face look like? It turns out when you're relaxed, when all the muscles in your face are relaxed, you look like this. And I had to tell the teachers that sometimes your students are going to be deeply engaged, but you're not going to see it because they're so relaxed in the moment. And we have to be careful not to get dismayed by the visual cues that we think we see, but we may be misinterpreting what's going on. I have had to tell myself when I'm in a good class, I purposely try to smile at the teacher, Because I know if I'm having a really good time, I'm going to be looking like this, (laughs) which will make them think I'm angry or mad or disengaged. So do not be dismayed. It turns out when you're teaching the word of God, it does resonate with people and it may bring them to a place of peace where their faces might be a a bit droopy. (laughs)
2: I love that.
1: Okay, let's jump into chapter two. So his interactions with the Lord, his calling, his his initial commission, he has his his mission call, his bags are packed, let's go in and talk to the people in Jerusalem, right? Which, by the way, it's much easier to get called to teach people far away than it is people in your own neighborhood, and his mission call took him to his own neighborhood, not unlike Lehi with his calling that we'll get to a little later. Notice verse 5, thus saith the Lord, what iniquity of your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain neither said they where is the lord that brought us up out of the land of egypt that fed us through the wilderness through a land of deserts and of pits through a land of drought and of the shadow of death through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt and i brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof but when ye entered ye defiled my land and made mine heritage Heritage and abomination. So his first message to the people is a hearkening back to say, look at all the wonderful things God has done for you. Look what He's given you, and look at what you've done in return to Him. Look, you're, you're not even thinking about Him. You're not even acknowledging you're turning to all these other gods.
2: Yeah, and I would say theologically, this is beautiful theology. What he's saying is. God doesn't abandon you. God is the constant. We, we he you might say even though God is all powerful, he's the vulnerable one in the relationship. He's the one who gets left behind over and over and over again and waits patiently for the return, right? He's the one who constantly stands at the door and is misused by us, never the other way around, right? This, that's what he's saying you've left me, I've been – I'm here, the light is still on,
0: come back home, you know. And I wonder, as I think about this for myself, is do I always trust God? Do I believe that he's always there for me? Do I sometimes turn away or start to be fearful or like Peter when he is out walking on the water, pay attention to all the chaos of my life and fail to keep my eyes riveted on the Lord? That's what he's saying, he's like, I have you, I've done all these things for your ancestors, why would you walk away from the source of everything that sustains you? That's a question for all of us.
1: Which, which is beautiful because you'll notice as we shift verb tenses here, he's reminding them, he's, he's getting them to hearken back to the stories they've been raised on, of what the, the God of Israel has done for them in the past. And then notice he shifts verb tenses in verse 9, wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. This is very Alma 5, isn't Alma it? Alma 5, Remember, yes. Remember, now what and about now, now? And, and can then you in trust the in the future? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He's he's helping you see that, once again, as you read the rest of this, with your children's children will I plead. Mm-hmm. So it's with your your ancestors, with you, and with your children's children. Down the road, and then verse 10, or verse 11, hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. He's, it's, it, it reminds us not just of Alma 5, but of Jesus' words to those Nephites and Lamanites in 3rd Nephi 8 and 9, after the, the incredible destructions at his crucifixion that took place over here in the New World, when he says, I gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I have now ga- I, I, will ga- I, I gather you presently, and I will yet gather you again. I hope you're hearing not just a story for Jerusalem, 600 BC time frame. I hope you're hearing Jeremiah's voice re-echoing in your mind as you then stop and contemplate what great things God hath done for your family in the past, what great things he's doing for you presently, and what great things he promises, lest this just stay as a history lesson.
0: Reminds me of Moroni chapter 10. Chapter 10, Mm -hmm. verse 3. And here's Moroni, the nation's been destroyed, it doesn't have a lot of plate space left, and he says, remember what great things the Lord hath done. Right here, God gave a brief summary of all the great things he had done. So in any moment where you're feeling discouraged or feeling abandoned or hopeless, just remember God is with you, and he has done these great things, and he will yet do great things in your life and the lives of his children everywhere.
1: Yeah, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, count your blessings. It's, it's It's a great principle to help us recognize the hand of the Lord. Now, let's dive in deeply into verse 13. Sean, this is a...
2: Yeah, we've we've been building to this.
1: Everything that we've done up to this point in his message has kind of prepared for. This is one of the biggest uh, signposts for Jeremiah. This verse right here.
2: So, so let's read it. For my people have committed two evils. So, what are these evils that they're going to uh, have committed? Another way to put this might be two. Stupidities. (laughs) Stupidities. <laughs> that yeah. may be too that strong, that right? Sense. I don't know. No, evils is good, but it's fool. What What is going on here? Why would anybody do this? They have forsaken the fountain of living waters, and and that's gonna got to have all kinds of uh, later echoes for us. Think of Jesus mm-hmm. talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John five, and I will bring up fountains of living water in you, but you have to be connected to me. Even Alma 32, it's not waters, but it's instead of First Nephi 8, where you go to the tree and you eat the fruit, now you're planting the seed in you and you become a tree of life. So all kinds of scriptural echoes of this, but you've got and the thing they needed most in the ancient world was water. Right? You have to have water. You can go a little while without food, but water does not go so well. And and they're like, ooh, there's something over there. I'm going to go live out in the desert because there was this great flash flood out there. And now look at it. Or a mirage. Yes. Or, <laughs> yeah, well said. Well said. And I, I've got this constantly replenishing source of water, but, you know, eh. Eh, and I'm, I'm going to just leave that behind. i
0: want to walk away from it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and, and how often is
2: that what we yeah. do,
0: right? So that's I, the first stupid thing they do, is reject the living water that's endlessly and always available to them.
2: I'm going to go for those things that actually will betray me in the end, and let the thing go that I can trust, because there's something new out there. There's something different. This is this is what I know. Let me go get the thing that I don't know. And, and curiosity is a good thing, right? So don't get me wrong, but to forsake the living waters. Um, and then the second one is, uh, where did it go? And hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. So they, not only are they going to reject the source of water, but their repositories that it's full of holes. Yeah, it's full of holes. So you put water in it, and and you haven't created a system that can hold the water. The water comes in and leaves immediately because you haven't done the the small amount of work to save, to to hold this life-preserving thing. Right? We we could do a lot with this a- application-wise. I think.
1: Oh, absolutely. So so on a scale as far as the size is concerned, you know you could have huge underground cisterns, as big as you want to hew them out, all the way down to smaller vessels, right? right? And the point being, if even if you've collected the rain that comes during the rainy season, which in the Holy Land is traditionally what? December, January timeframe? February? They get on average these days, what, 24 inches of rain? Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there. In, uh, in Jerusalem. In comparison, I believe London gets roughly 22 inches of rain per year. The difference is in Jerusalem, it all comes in a pretty pretty quick timeline. So they would col- go to all this work of hew out this cistern, collect all this rainwater when it comes so that now, during those dry months of the year, we've got all we need. But if your cistern has cracks in it, you've, you've put your hope and your faith in something that won't sustain you. And when the drought comes and the, the those hot months of the year come and you need water for you and your animals and your crops, it's all seeped away. There are holes in your conversion. And there's not there's no water in the well.
2: So you think what And and this takes more effort. This doesn't take a whole lot of effort. Just go Go fix it up. But no, I I got other things I'm I'm worried about. And so I don't know what we would liken this to Is this uh, going, spending a weekend at general conference, but then what what do you do to maintain, to get use out of that the next six months? So you think about daily scripture study and daily devotion. You think about, wait, I've gone to take the sacrament, but then the rest of the week I just ignore it, and it's like it's like a giant hole at the bottom. You dump in power and it just flows right out because you're not doing anything to to appreciate it, to accept it, to use it in your life.
1: Which is such a beautiful principle when you I, I don't go to church because I can check a box because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. I go to church because my cistern needs repair, and I don't have the power to repair it. I go with a whole bunch of other people who are struggling with their cisterns as well, and we have a sacrament experience where we invite the Lord in to help us fix those, those breaches in our, in, in our cisterns of faith and hope and conversion to him.
0: Not only to repair it, but to fill it full, to overflowing. I'll add to this that in your life, God will allow you to suffer and struggle. And what is he doing? He is carving out cisterns in your soul, Mm. which he can then fill to overflowing, and without that cistern, you can't fully experience the atonement of Jesus Christ, the everlasting atonement. So when you're being carved out in those painful life experiences, just know God is intending to fill that to the brim with the everlasting waters of his love, and it will be sweet after you've experienced the bitter.
2: That's a slightly, uh, that was beautiful, and a slightly different uh, analogy than probably the one Jeremiah is doing, but would be things we put in our cistern that aren't everlasting water. So that's a little bit of a different approach, but how often do we do? We put things that actually don't give life in the place that's needed. And and we had talked about this when I was with you for Isaiah, this idea, there's a hole in our soul, and that hole is Christ-shaped. Christ and and the gospel is what fills this up, and other things are really good too, but that is what's going to help this really have value.
0: And back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying through the Lord, the Lord is saying through Jeremiah, The problem is people have created their own cisterns Mm. full of holes, instead of letting God carve those out, God creating those in his image. So we need to let God work in our own lives instead of rejecting the everlasting waters and creating our own holes in life hoping that the world will fill it. They will. It will be junk and it will be really painful.
1: So as we jump into chapter 3 now, Jeremiah uses uh, this, this analogy that has come up before and it's going to come in in its fullest sense when we get to the book of Hosea. It's this comparison between Israel being the bride and the Lord being the bridegroom in this marriage covenant connection, and that that bride is continually unfaithful. He opens up chapter three talking about her um, going after other other relationships, and he's pleading with her to c- return again to me, saith the Lord and then you jump down into verse 6. Look at his wording here. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? Keep in mind, here we are at the time of Josiah, so we're getting close to 600 BC, and he's reminding them, remember what backsliding Israel, those ten tribes up north, did? And remember what happened to them with Assyria? Now, he takes it one step further. She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. All of this this idol worship that involves a lot of adultery associated with the worship of Baal and the, the groves with the Asherah. Look at verse 7. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it,
0: <laughs> and she's going to learn. Her she's yeah. going to learn. Like, yeah. oh, oh, that's what happens. You need to be a good example. Yeah, yeah. Don't follow your
2: siblings' example there.
1: And so here's this
2: kingdom of Judah that Jeremiah and
1: Lehi and Daniel and Ezekiel and others are prophesying among, and they're saying, "You didn't get it. Y- you are the treacherous sister. You're following exactly what your your sister Israel did, and the same things are going to happen to you because of your spiritual." adultery, going after a different uh, a different God rather than the Lord God of Israel.
0: And I saw, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away. And really this is religious language saying the people were unfaithful to God, the covenant that he delivered to them at Mount Sinai, they consistently rejected, consistently rejected fidelity and faithfulness to God. So what happens? Um, I put put her away and gave her a bill of divorce, so I let the Assyrians come and conquer the ten northern tribes, and you have the ten lost tribes now. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also." It's like, how could you be so silly? You saw what happened to people who rejected me, and I've given you another hundred and twenty years to learn. Don't we hear in the Book of Mormon, O be wise, what more can I say? And also like the prophets of the Book of Mormon saying, we want you to learn from our experience. Here's what happens when people reject God's commands, here's what happens when people live God's commands. Jeremiah is giving the same message. It's very simple. Tell God that you want to be on his side and declare your loyalty to him on a regular basis. Prayer, scripture study, weekly sacrament meeting, loving your neighbor, loving God, it really is not rocket science. It's God's science.
1: Now, by the way, mm. as you listen to this, you might be thinking to yourself, well, this really is just doom and gloom. Mm. He, he's just he's telling them what, how dumb they've been and how, how foolish to do all these things, and there's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of directions of, okay, so therefore what? Are you just telling us all these bad things are going to happen to us, or is there some hope? Is there something I could do to not have this same consequence. Well, you get that in verse 12, 13, 14. Not just for Judah, which is interesting, he includes some of those who had been carried away captive 120 plus years ago. Look at verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north, the direction they've been carried captive and say, return thou, backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. I love that. He's saying, I'm not mad. I'm, I, I'm not an angry being. I want to bless you, but I can't bless you if you won't return to me. I can't treat you like a bride if you're out there with other faults uh, relationships and, and worship, and then verse thirteen, only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed the Lord against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. It's that acknowledgement, that recognition, and and meekly saying to the Lord, Yeah, I, I've, I've struggled. And then verse fourteen starts with the word turn. How, is there a, is there another way you could translate the the Hebrew word so. into English from turn.
2: You, you you knew what I wanted to do with this. Uh, absolutely, there is uh, the, the shoe, right? This is the word for repentance, and and it's so beautiful to see how it comes together. God isn't shaming them. He's saying, no, just come back. So, so turn, return, to turn around. If you're going the wrong direction, turn around and come back. Uh, this is not about, oh, you're, you know, I, I want you to feel guilty or I want you to feel shame. This is, you got to recognize you're going the wrong way. That takes acknowledging that you're going the wrong way. And then you course correct and you come back. And that, for those, all of us fit in this camp uh, in different ways, those who have strayed, okay, turn around and come back and, and see that God is with open arms willing to accept you. Now, it's sort of fun to see also that all of this concept of turn, the same word as repent in the Hebrew Bible, is also connected to gather, right? And so this concept of gathering, right, come back in and be gathered, right? So so think of these arms that a mother gathers her children into her arms. So there's all kinds of beautiful connotations with repentance, with turning, uh, and, and then with being gathered back in, which is a theme we care about.
0: Uh, I've right. never seen that before, so it just fits perfectly with missionary work. Is about finding scattered Israel and helping them repent or turn back into God. That's a great insight. Jeremiah did it. That's Jeremiah good. It. <laughs> it's good. Which,
1: again, it, it brings that, that imagery to mind of, of Jesus speaking in a couple of contexts of the mother hen mm-hmm. gathering her chicks under her wings, because a hen doesn't have arms and hands, but she has wings, and it's that protecting, turn from where you're going and come to me. It's this invitation to come unto our Savior and our Redeemer. It's beautiful.
2: Now, we, we shouldn't leave the this string of verses until we finish off 14 and 15, because it's mm-hmm. just so beautiful. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married to you. I'm I'm your spouse, I mean, this covenant, this vulnerable, you might say, covenant relationship with you, come back, I've been loyal, I've been waiting, turn, I am married to you, I will take you, one of a city, one of a family, this, think of this gathering one at a time, and I will bring you to Zion, and then this, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. You rejected the living waters and you ran out there, just come back, recognize it. Don't in your vanity, don't say, no, I'm going to stay out here. It's not about, you know, that. It's about just come back where the water is, right? I'm married to you. Come back and be with me. It's so beautiful, so tender. And then think of how we read this uh, in the Restoration, right? I'm going to gather you to Zion. I'm going to give you pastors after mine own heart. You were talking about missionary work in the Latter-day Gathering.
1: Which, so to bring this into the 21st century, this the these verses we don't have to we don't have to stay stuck in the historical setting of what these people were were struggling with we can also bring it forward to our day and say when when our prophets invite us and encourage us to constantly be repenting it's not this put on sackcloth and and sprinkle ashes constantly this oh i've got to i've got to completely change who i am no In this context, it's, I've got to continually turn. I've got to keep turning heavenward every day. I can't think of a day when I could get to the end of the day and say, I was pretty good today. I don't need to pray. I don't need to turn to God. There's nothing I need to change. Hence, daily turning or daily repentance. I constantly need to keep going back to him.
2: And if we could point to the temple for a moment, this idea that as you return, you are gathered back into, not you don't just come back and start drinking water, you're gathered back into a covenantal relationship. And that's what God is calling us into. And I find it beautiful that he uses the symbolism of marriage and that in the place, our sacred place, where we make many of our covenants with God, marriage is also such a big deal, this idea of unity and gathering and tying and binding people's hearts together. I find that uh, really appropriate.
1: It's beautiful. Now this next verse is kind of an interesting one, verse, verse 16, because he he brings up something that is very near and dear to the heart of most of these ancient Israelites, this, this Ark of the Covenant, which was located in their most sacred space, the Holy of Holies of the Temple there in Jerusalem. But notice what he says, it shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall they be done, that be done any more. The Ark of the Covenant is going to be so last year to them. Mm-hmm. Why? At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Remember the Ark of the Covenant with those two cherubim on on the lid forming the mercy seat representing the throne of God, the presence of God. That's why it's in the sacred space called the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all. But he's saying, but at that time, they're going to call all of Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. It's not just reserved for that one little place. Now, I get that in their day and in his context, it means certain things leading into the exile. But I think from a Latter-day Saint perspective, if we were to liken the scripture to us, we would say, that's what the Lord is trying to do, is build a Zion society where you don't have to go to the Holy of Holies to come into the presence of God, because the presence of God is everywhere, because of who we have become as as a collective, one heart, one mind, dwelt in righteousness, no poor among us, and God dwells with us. We don't have to go to a location to come into the presence of God because we've invited God into whatever location we may happen to be in at that time.
2: So as we're moving out of chapter 3, we didn't want to jump ahead without hitting chapter 4 verse 1. If thou wilt return, these if-then statements, right? If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then uh, thou uh, shalt thou not remove. And by the way, that that can be applied to all of us. But I find it fascinating that the tribes of Israel, the Kingdom of Israel, has been gone for almost 120, 130 years going on that. And God is showing, I still care about you. You've, you might have been forgotten by others. I have not forgotten you. I'm still married to you. So you're the lost ten tribes, so to speak, as we call them today. I'm going to gather you. Come back. And and it sort of sets up this latter-day situation where it's not just one of those tribes that God continues to honor. It's the relationship with the whole house of Israel, shockingly, that he continues to remember.
0: That's beautiful. Jeremiah spends time detailing the significant errors and sins that people are engaging in, really atrocious things, and I don't think Jeremiah felt a lot of joy in having to declare with such soberness what the people are doing. It makes me think of the prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon who, he goes to the temple and he's preaching to the people and he just wants to preach the soothing words of God, but instead he has to call out the Nephite men for some very egregious sins. My sense is that Jeremiah May have had something very similar experience, having to compose and share what he did in Jeremiah chapter seven. Just just the sinfulness of the people that he had to document.
1: As we're now um, turning quickly through some of these chapters, let's just let's touch on a couple of verses along the way as we go. Chapter eight, verse twenty, has some very sobering words that actually the Lord is going to repeat later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, you're going to hear this phrase again this idea of the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved, which flies in the face of what Laman and Lemuel believe about everything in, in Jerusalem at the time when, when their father took them out. They're like, no, we're going to be saved, it's all going to be good. And here's Jeremiah, who's a contemporary of that family, saying, no, the, the day's going to come when this, the harvest is passed, the fills are all gleaned, The summer's ended, falls on its way, and we are not saved. Those are sobering words um, that Jeremiah's, if you stop and think about it, his whole purpose isn't to try to discourage people, it's to try to paint a realistic picture so they don't experience these things, and unfortunately, they're going to experience these things.
2: They procrastinate their repentance. When I'm teaching, I like asking, okay, how many of you struggle with procrastination? And half of the hands will go up and I'll say, well, the rest of you just haven't gotten around to raising your hands. You know, But this idea, how many times have I procrastinated something that I thought was going to be difficult in- until I got myself in this real uncomfortable place. And then when I finally get started, I'm like, why didn't I do this a month ago? I feel so much better. We, we believe we can procrastinate for ever and nothing will ever change. But there are, and I hate to say it, there are opportunities lost. And the damage we do to ourselves, the stress we put on ourselves by not just making our lives better today. I'll do it tomorrow. What a what a I'm going to feel stress one more day and then I'll feel better tomorrow. I want to feel miserable good. And we do this right? I'm good and miserable today. I'm going to work on this tomorrow. Mm, Or let's just get let's start today. Right. for
1: my spirit will not always strive with man, right? Mm-hmm. It's There comes that time when he says, okay, you don't want to change? Uh,
0: that's your choice. Joshua te- tells people, choose ye this day. He doesn't say, make the decision tomorrow or maybe in a week. Uh, it's fascinating right. that the person you want to be gets decided today. So whatever future self you want for yourself, you have to choose today to start living that person now because the future will happen, and if you don't start living that future self now, when you get there, you will be a different person than Mm. who you imagined. So the only way to build your future self for the future is to start today, right now. That's what God's asking us.
2: And another way of putting that is, the, the only time you have agency, is the now time? You don't have agency tomorrow. I mean, that, until it becomes now. But and oh, I'm gonna, I'll have more power tomorrow after making bad choices for another day. The tomorrow me is gonna be better equipped. Now is the moment that where the agency resides, and so I need to act now, not tomorrow.
1: Powerful. So the next place we want to just kind of briefly um, pause for a moment is in chapter eleven, verse four and five. You'll notice we've we've used this concept repeatedly in the Old Testament and throughout the Scriptures. Is the nutshell definition of all covenants with God eventually boil themselves down to this this core, very simple definition of "I will be your God, and you will be my people." If you ever wanted to do a, a search across all Scriptures for the phrase my people or thy people, if it's them saying, we want to be thy people. Look for that. That's covenantal language of saying, okay, we've turned, we've repented, we've come back home to this marriage covenant with thee. We want to be thy people. And then if you also do a search on just those two words, your God or um, I will be your God or you will be our God. So if you look for those two combinations, you're going to find this all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament, all over the Book of Mormon, and it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, this covenantal connection. And it shows up very beautifully like it does here in verse 4. Which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you, so shall ye be my people, and I will be your God. So, he's reminding them, that this, is, this is what it is. I brought them out with that agreement, I'm reestablishing this covenantal agreement with you. Why? Verse 5, that you could put a sow in front of there. So that, or in order that I may perform the oath which I have per, uh, sworn unto your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then answered I and said, so be it, O Lord that beautiful response from Jeremiah and from hopefully people who are saying, you're giving us all these amazing things that flow from keeping that covenant, whether it be land, law, posterity, prosperity, priesthood power, all these things that flow out of keeping that covenant. It's just, it's beautiful as you see this play out through time. And when you go get baptized, that's what you're saying. We want you to be our God. We want to be thy people. When you go to the temple, that's what you're saying is, I want that relationship even deeper. And as you go to the sacrament table every single week, that's what you're saying. You're turning to him, and you're saying, okay, my sister needs more help. I want you to be my God, and I want to be thy people more than I ever have before. And we just keep working through this process over time.
2: So if you think about these personal possessive pronouns, right? Right. God is God, right? God, Independent God of you is and me. God, no matter what you do, but what we want is to say, you're my God, I, and, and there's this is a agentive or agentive, right, where you, you get to choose, right? God's going to be God no matter what you pick, but I want him to be my God, and that feels different, and he chooses us as his people, and there's, there's choice involved here, right? We're a people, one way or the other, are we God's people,
0: right? So again, I don't think Jeremiah takes a lot of delight in having to re-inscribe again and again what the people of Judah are doing like that their their brother had done in Israel in in, uh, the ten northern tribes. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their hearts and upon the horns of your altars. While till children remember their altars and their their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. He's basically saying, you guys have sinned against God so often, it's like you've almost made it permanent. Now, even though Jeremiah uses very strong language about the near permanency of what the people's actions had done, we need to remember that God still is calling to them, wanting them back in this relationship, and saying, I can wipe that all out. But the imagery is meant to get people's attention. If you think about Jesus, sometimes he spoke with exaggeration, for example, for effect. He talked about, look, if you have a telephone pole sticking out of your eye, you shouldn't try to pull a sliver out of somebody else's. Now, have you ever seen anybody with a telephone pole sticking out of their eye? It's just, I mean, if that was the case, that person would be dead. So sometimes we use exaggeration or hyperbole to make a point unmistakable. If this is what Jeremiah is doing, he needs people to wake up to the reality of their situation and be willing to repent and to turn back to God, who is always, always willing to have us back into his embrace.
2: You know, historically, this this imagery, he might be working with something that would have been familiar to them. You've engraved, look at the end of uh, verse 1, you've engraven upon the horns of your altars. There, There is an archaeological discovery in Tel Beersheva, where when they uncovered the altar, and they put it back together, there's a snake engraven on the altar. And, and you think, what is going on here? It's hard to know what's going on. Why is a snake engraven? The, this image, and we know that they were a little bit obsessed with the image of the snake. They call it Nehushtan, and then mm-hmm. it has to be destroyed, right? Anyway, sort of fascinating that he then may be working with some ancient things and then talking about, you've done this on the, the tables of your heart. Mm-hmm. And then then I love later on the imagery of God's going to inscribe on the fleshy table of the heart by the power of the spirit. I mean, there's just all kinds of imagery that is, is really beautifully done here by the prophets, not, which
0: isn't a surprise, right? To expand on what you're saying, what, what Sean is referring to is back in the time of Moses, the people were bitten by snakes, and God said, put up a brazen serpent on a staff, and if people look to it, they'll be healed. Well, that became this religious and spiritual iconography – maybe not the right word – that was put into the tabernacle in the temple. Hundreds of years later during the time of Hezekiah, that brazen serpent became a stumbling block for people. People missed the point. They thought that, well, if I just simply look at that, well then I'm going to be healed, and they missed it was about Jesus, and so God asked Hezekiah to destroy this religious symbol because it was now getting in the way of people's worship. So you might imagine these ancient Israelites, you know, let's inscribe on this altar the snake because that symbolizes how God heals us, and the question is for us, Do I ever let the signs and symbols of my religion, my love for God, actually become a wall for me getting access to God? Or maybe a wall to somebody else, that because I am doing things and I'm throwing symbols out without full intention or full meaning, that I'm distracting people from the living God and distracting them with just physical objects that on their own won't save anybody. So that's how we might tie that in.
2: Yeah, yeah, good. I like that. Thank you.
0: So now we have in Jeremiah chapter 18 this this story about the potter's clay. We've talked about these symbols in the past of how God makes us, that he fashions us. Let's look at some of these verses here. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, sorry, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels, and the vessel which he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, let will pause here, God takes a very common experience in Jeremiah's day to teach a lesson. God can teach us in, with everyday lessons. You might think General Conference, they often don't talk about potters' wills, but they talk about other things that are common in our day because they're trying to convey a lesson. It says in verse 6, O house of Israel, cannot I I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. What hope? Okay, the pot maybe didn't form properly the first time. God can work with the pot if we allow him to. So all is not lost. We don't need to think that if we've committed sin, we're on the wrong path, that we have a past that's unspeakable, that that says anything about our future. We have a full future with God. When you choose to turn to God, he is the potter, he can remake all that clay and make something incredible of you. No matter what that clay happened to be in the past, it could be completely and fully remade. You do not need to let your past dictate your future. You can let God chart your future for you.
2: Mm. Instead of a lump of dirt, which is what we are, outside of God. Yeah, right. Or uh, made from the dust of the earth. But then he, he makes something that holds water, that has artistry, that's beautiful, that's refined, that's elegant. That's what He's doing with us. Or, you know, you can stay the lump of dirt. Right. This is what we are. Not in God's hands. Right. That's some great imagery here.
0: And sometimes we treat one another as dirt, mm. or we treat ourselves as dirt. And we're missing the point. God is intending to mold us. So we do not need not define us for where we're at today. Nice. But let ourselves be defined by who we can become with God. So when we get to chapter 20, you're going to notice that
1: uh, no good deed goes unpunished, right? <laughs> in in history. So here's Jeremiah, he's been on the Lord's errand. And you'll notice when the Lord sends you on an errand, he doesn't guarantee that it's going to be pain-free or or that it's just always gonna gonna work out for the best, as far as our our mortal perspective is concerned. In chapter 20, verse two, it says that Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet. And by the way, Pasher is the the priest, who's also the chief governor in the house of the Lord. So in the temple, so he's the head, head priest, high priest, and he's now smiting Jeremiah. And he put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which were by the house of the Lord, in this public place where everybody walking by can see him in shame. And you'll notice as you get down to verse seven, Jeremiah is saying, "O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily; every one mocketh me, for since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily." Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart, as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Isn't that interesting? Jeremiah gets to this point where he's like, well, this is clearly not working, and it's not having an effect, and it's, it's obviously not popular, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to keep my mouth quiet.
2: I I'm worked not- hard, and this has not worked out the way that I anticipated.
1: So I'm just gonna be quiet. I'm out. And then it says, it it was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. It just ugh, it's just there and I I can't stay silent. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep preaching.
2: Matt I gotta just say this. Tyler and Taylor do this podcast. And I think this is the it's fire in the bones if you've ever heard that phrase, right? There is a scriptural message and we want to we want it to be shared. So I love that phrase fire in the bones. If you've ever heard that, that's where this comes from. It's right here in Jeremiah. Yeah. so
1: beautiful. yeah. So if you've ever been discouraged in your calling or in your family or in in life in general and and you have to reassess and re-engage,
2: Jeremiah fills your pain. That, that moment when you want to take your ball and go home, I'm taking my ball with me, you know, I'm out. i <laughs> going home, you know? I don't want to play this game. And, and then you're like, no, no, that, that doesn't work either, because the fire is in the bones.
1: Which, by the way, can I just say as a side note, I think we could do a better job collectively, and it's not my place to, to make judgments on us as, as a group, but just my observation is, we could do a better job of truly sustaining prophets, seers, and revelators, and our leaders, our, our bishops, our Relief Society presidents, our Young Women presidents, primary presidents, our stake presidents, all these layers within within the structure of the church itself, we could do a better job of helping them not feel so discouraged, like they're trying so hard to build up the kingdom of God and all they get is resistance and complaint and, and at times rejection.
2: Agreed. Agreed. Well, maybe let's finish up uh, by just in some general ways. If you skip forward to chapters 26, 27, 28, but there's some things with false prophets that we won't really touch on, but uh, we'll, we'll, those can be looked at another time. But this is where Jeremiah is going to give some pretty strong prophecies. You're actually going to go into bondage. Uh, you're, you're going to be captive, Uh, and Babylon's going to be in charge for a while, and he gives a specific time, then he says, but I am going to gather you on the other other end so that there can be this hope, hang in there, because God will redeem you. But there's a a fascinating thing here when we see these, what we might consider negative prophecies, and and there's a tie-in with the Book of Mormon, that these times when there's going to be destruction, God multiplies prophets. And you see that in the Book of Mormon as well. First Nephi chapter 1 verse 4, in that same year there came many prophets prophesying unto the people that they must repent or the great city of Jerusalem must be destroyed. So it's not just one voice here. Let me read you the list. Nahum is at this time, Jeremiah of course, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, the prophetess Huldah, is at this time, Ezekiel, Daniel, we might want to add Lehi and Nephi at this time, the multiplication of prophets. And and you actually see that about a century, a little more than a century earlier, right at the time when Israel is going to be destroyed, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah. Now, we we jump forward, well, we see it in the Book of Mormon, and and that tie together is beautiful. They're going to kill Lehi because they don't like what he's saying, now come to the latter days, and the multiplication that God is giving of prophetic voices in the latter days. Repent and return, because Christ will return, right? And, and you got to be ready that the summer is going to be past and the harvest ended. And, and he's not just leaving the world to say, oh, well, you'll be fine. No, he is sending his prophetic voices out into the world saying, you can have greater joy than this. Come one at a time, one of a family, two of a city, right, and and return to the Lord um, so that you're prepared, right? Beautiful times, I think.
1: I think it's amazing. And there's there's another connection here with um, a prophetic pattern that we see through time. Is God doesn't first send the prophets and and give imminent prophecies. He doesn't usually lead out with tough luck, it's too late, there's not a thing you can do, you are going to be brought into bondage. God doesn't do that. He usually sends prophets first and they open with conditional prophecies, usually starting with the word if. If you don't repent, if you don't turn to the Lord, if you don't reestablish that covenant, if you refuse to be his people, then these bad things are going to happen but then he gives them a time to to test their agency, to see if they will actually reestablish or connect with God in that covenant. And when they break those conditions, then he comes with the imminent prophecies. You see, one of my favorite examples of this is, we we keep going back to Abinadi, in, in in, in Mosiah chapter 11, the first time he preaches to the people of King Noah, it's all conditional it's if you don't repent, then you're going you're gonna to suffer these things. Two years later, he came back in disguise to see how they're doing, sees how they're doing. They're worse than they were two years ago. Boom. Now start all of his imminent prophecies. You shall be brought. The Lord will do this. And then at the very end of all of that, he gives one condition. And if at that time, when you're brought into bondage, if you still choose not to repent, if you still choose not to repent, then you're going to be utterly destroyed. So he gives one condition at the end of the imminent, and that's what's happening here with Jeremiah, is he's given plenty of conditional prophecies, it's not happening, now come the imminent ones.
2: And by the way, both of these are motivated by love, right? right. I'm going to try to get you to turn away. Okay, you're picking, and I see what you're picking, but let me prepare you for what's coming so that you know... I'm I'm a loving God, and I've prepared you for these things, right? Uh, Both of these are based in love. And I would even suggest that maybe sometimes, because we tend to be pessimistic, we might read something as imminent, and God's like, yeah, but no, repent. And, you know, Nineveh may have thought, oh, it's imminent, but they chose to repent, and it turned out, nope, that's conditional. That was conditional, so...
0: As we conclude this portion of Jeremiah, there's been some hard things to watch Jeremiah struggling with these people. and We imagine how God feels having struggled for centuries with these people, encouraging them that his love is real, unmistakable, and always available. So the invitation to all of us is to remember that God's love, his loving kindness, is always, always available for us. And we can listen to the words of Jeremiah and say, I can choose to be different. I can choose now to have God's word written on my heart. I can choose loyalty. It's okay if we're not perfect right now, but we can let God guide us on his path so that we can be along those paths of living waters, feeling joy and peace as we make our way to the tree of life. And I think Jeremiah would be deeply pleased if we took his word seriously that we're not apparently taken seriously by the people he preached to.
1: So, we would hope that each one of us as we go into this week more fully recognize our complete need for him to be our God and for us to be his people. And that's our hope and prayer. And we leave it with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved.
0: And spread light and goodness.